Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. And now, it's time for Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast. Hello. The voices in your head are actually part of a podcast. It's Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast. You're Jesse Gaskell. I am. And you're Mike Sweeney. Uh, the, the idea is we talk about uh, behind the scenes of Conan and we have guests who are uh, in some way related to the Conan show and beyond. Yes. It's like Bed Bath & Beyond. The beyond is a really big category. Ex- yes. We can have the, the person who invented the shake weight on the podcast. Nice tease for our next guest. <laughs> we had a, a big mishap at the show this week. Well, the show came back from a break. Yeah, we were on a three-week hiatus. And the show's taping at the Largo Theater in West Hollywood. They were robbed or burglarized. We were robbed, yes. Someone came in. Oh, yeah, what's the difference between a, a burglary? You can be robbed, like, on the street. Okay. But a burglary means someone has penetrated your private property, <laughs> i.e. a building. Yes. To steal things. But we weren't there, obviously, when it happened. They stole a couple of laptops. Yeah, they stole some laptops and a clapperboard. The slate. It's called the slate. Yeah, which is the most Los Angeles <laughs> it is. theft that can possibly happen. But, you know, maybe someone without the means wanted to start their own TV show mm-hmm. and needed to steal a... Uh, a clapper. Yeah, they're so. like, we got everything except the slate. Yes. Well, we can dive right into our show because we have a really, we have a long interview coming up. And I think it's no surprise that this person talked for a while with us. Second time on our show. Second time. The first time on, we talked about the beginning of the Late Night with Conan O'Brien and only got up to, I think, February or March of 1994. <laughs> yeah. So now we talked for another hour, and we got up through April of 1994. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Our guest is Robert Smigel, the original head writer and one of the original producers. Creator of Triumph, the Insult comic dog, among many other famous bits. And uh, helped co-create Late Night with Conan O'Brien with Conan O'Brien. And he has a photographic memory, so it's, it's fun to talk to him. Yeah. Really get a sense of what that time was like. Here he is, Roberto Smigel. <laughs> Welcome back to Inside Conan. Welcome back. Thank you. Yes, you were last on, I think it was like 15 months ago. Yeah. And we checked and we left off at February 28th, 1994. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how far we had gone. Oh, all right. Thank God it wasn't a leap year where we had <laughs> right, more right. ground to cover. We'd be lost in a vortex. We did do five shows a week, you know, and we packed it with comedy and it was very hard. And right. sometimes I would, you know, I said on the last time I was here, like how I discovered, oh, especially on that Letterman show that we, when Letterman was the guest and we wanted to make it the best show ever. Right. It was like planning for a bar mitzvah or something because he was coming back to right. NBC. We loaded <laughs> it with comedy. And then I went straight to the edit room and because the show was long and it was the first time I realized, oh, I can really manipulate like if a bit is slow or whatever. Right. And then I started to abuse that privilege and, and I would edit. To tighten up a bit. To tighten like- up a bit. And it was a way of Telling Jeff Ross, don't worry if it goes long. I'll take care of it in the end. Right, right, right. Conan and I tried very hard to be super accessible and tight with the writers. And it was one of the reasons it was my favorite job ever is because I felt so attached to the people I was working with. And I felt like we were a real unit, you know, all the all those original seven guys who uh, 
There were no women back then. Women didn't exist. (laughs) This is 1993 before funny women were invented. (laughs) Men created in labs. It really was. I used to get interviewed about that occasionally, Jesse. Really? What did you say? I mean, really, the truth was that there were for every, and I'm sure you've heard this one, this old trope, (laughs) but for every like hundred submissions, there'd be like three female submissions. Yeah. And so it was like almost a law of averages thing. I think it was something that was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because whatever it was, there was like an inherent prejudice that discouraged women from thinking that they could even have the chance of getting a job there in the first place. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I felt that way growing up. It didn't seem like a job that was realistic to get. Yeah, I mean, Meryl Marco was like the exception that proved the rule. You know, she was Letterman's head yeah. writer, but I don't think there was a woman writer on the staff other than Meryl Marco in the 80s. I really think, now I'm really digressing, but I think SNL had a big role in, like right after that, like in 95 or so, Sherry O'Terry and Molly Shannon, they just kind of took over that show. Uh-huh. Yeah, Anna Gasteyer. Then Anna came and yeah. then, you know, and that led the way for people like Faye and Polar. And right. I think that had a huge impact on late night comedy from then on. Mm-hmm. They developed characters that the audience connected with really quickly. Right. They weren't afraid to take big swings, like broad characters that had like Farley type energy. You know, there were great people who preceded them, like, you know, obviously Gilda and Jane and Lorraine Newman and uh, Jan Hooks and Nora Dunn. And I mean, amazing people. But these were the first ones who really like every week they would be churning out character stuff for themselves, you know? Right. And they were great at it. And they just... Yeah, they were stars. Yeah, they were stars. And they just set an example for everyone who followed, like not to be afraid of that. And, and it sort of, you know, they re-educated the show. And I think that that had an effect on all of late night comedy eventually. That's interesting because uh, I think you're right. I think you always think of the big uh, swell of women, uh, you know, at SNL coming a few years later. And it's interesting to think that these two yeah, kind of. I mean, Sherry more than anybody. Molly Shannon was incredible and had yeah. a great career there. But Sherry was like, bam, every single She did the cheerleaders. Yeah. That like took over the show immediately when that cast came on. Right. Like just every week she would have a character the audience loved. And right. A recurring character. Yeah. She doesn't get nearly the credit for whatever reason. A lot of times with SNL, people are judged on what they did after. Oh, that's, yeah. And the rest of their careers kind of helps define how they're remembered. Right. It's kind of always looked at as a launching pad. Yeah. So like Tina and Amy have had like these amazing mega careers and Molly and and Maya Rudolph, you know, and they're all. And Molly's doing great. Yeah. And Molly's doing great. And and Sherry hasn't had uh, as many uh, big hits since Saturday Night Live. But, you know, it's if I had to point to one person who changed the show, it would be her. Oddly enough. Or not oddly. That's cool. No, I haven't. I haven't heard this take before. So I like that. Yeah. I was there. (laughs) No, I remember I was there for their first show because I had written a cold open. I wasn't part of the show, but I was trying to help. Uh Lauren had almost been like pushed out and then he stayed. And so I wrote a cold open and then I stayed for the show. And Sherry and Molly did this sketch called Leg Up where they played Ann Miller and Debbie Reynolds. Oh, I I think I remember. And they're just like, bam, right to camera. Total confidence, their first show. Right. And Sherry especially was just like a machine. And Lauren just looked at me. I was standing next to him. She's really, she's something, isn't she? <laughs> what a firecracker. I think you might have used the term firecracker. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people watching at home were felt like, yeah, this is, I could be funny that way. I can laugh at a woman. I can laugh at a woman and I, or I could be that woman. I could, I can go for it. And, uh, that was me. That was little Jesse. Oh, that little girl was me. Yes. (laughs) So February 28th, 1994. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Jeff Frost is in my earphone. It's enough. Enough. Move on. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. (laughs) We're over. We're over. (laughs) 
Oh my Lord. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're talking about how tight the group was, the original group. I mean, yeah. when yeah. you think about it, only seven writers, seven writers. And then there were four guys who worked on the monologue. Right. They were all great guys. Tom Agnett, Chuck Sklar. Right. Amir Golan. Brian Kiley. Incredible joke churning machine and a hilarious guy. Yes. But the sketch writers, you're right, were the ones who were the ones who were dealing with the bulk of the craziness on the show. You were replacing The Letterman Show, which... Oh, it was the greatest opportunity ever. Great opportunity and an insane challenge. The most exciting and scariest challenge at the same time. Terrifying. And what was really great about running that show was I had done eight years at Saturday Night Live, and it was just the polar opposite in terms of... Like, I, I always felt like I was kind of a driven person and when I was that age, really wanting, every, wanting to do great work. But I was not, I hated competition. It just made me ill. Mm-hmm. SNL was so competitive. Yeah. Nobody has the same agenda on that show. Right. Everybody is thrown into this gumbo and forced to compete with each other. You collaborate with people too, but that's usually in sort of like, clicks like me and Conan and Greg Daniels and Bob Odenkirk right. kind of thing. We almost always wrote together. And there were other writers that we once in a blue moon would write with, but not very often. And, um, and so you're forced to, you know, you're not rooting against people. Well, I guess some people said they were. Like there are some writers <laughs> who say, yeah, no, you go and you root against every other sketch. You don't and, laugh. Yeah. Right, right, right. I heard about that at read-throughs where you're talking about clicks, and if if you weren't in like one of the cool guys, no one would laugh at your at the reading. I didn't feel that it was that way when I was at SNL. Okay, but I did feel I did hear people of the the later era, right, like late '90s, openly telling me that, yeah, oh no, I'd try not to laugh at uh, other people's stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's taking it too far. Well, another big difference with the Conan show was. You had to get a show on every every day, so, <laughs> so you couldn't you couldn't root against anyone. It, like if someone yeah, else came up with an true. idea, you need content. Why? Well, thank God, yeah. you wanted yeah. to build an altar to them. It was like, thank you. Uh, now we don't have to stay till one a.m. Yeah, no, there were two things going on, which is uh, everybody has the same agenda. We're trying to come up with funny stuff that's going to make Conan look good and Andy, and 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 that's going right. to support their sensibility. And then the second thing is, yes, we have five shows to fill a week and, or even four. And unlike SNL, where the host changes every week, if you don't get your sketch on this week, there's still a chance that you could dig it up and put it on in months from now. Oh, that's a good point. Whereas SNL, there was always this do or die thing at read through, like your precious baby was going to be read in a room and Grumpy set designers were going to be, you know, I heard this one before. (laughs) Set designers are wonderful people. (laughs) Even though you loved everybody you were working with, you were forced to be thrown into that. And here we're all working toward the same goal. And I had never experienced that. It was like a really... Oh, is that true? No, because all all I knew was SNL. I hadn't experienced that since I was in Chicago and I worked on a comedy group. Right. Which was also like a wonderful period of my life to the point where I was 25 when I got SNL and I was over the moon, obviously, but there was a part of me that actually wished that I wish this could happen like three years from now. Because I just was so happy in Chicago. You had that wisdom at that age, like, ugh. I, it's almost like having a kid or something where you're like, okay. This- it's a blessing, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of it as wisdom. I just really, like, the last thing I wanted to do was feel bad about it because it was like winning the lottery. Ugh, I got to right. move to New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was from New York, so my parents were just like ridiculously happy. Yeah. But I love uh, Chicago. It's my favorite city. And uh, I was, those were the best years, you know, other than having kids. But uh, I, you know, just working with other people toward a common goal uh, was so exciting. And that's how the Conan show felt. We became so tight and uh, dependent on each other. And all those guys contributed enormously to creating the entire vibe and uh, sensibility of that show. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't any one or even a couple of people. It was a, it was a real collaboration, just the most exciting uh, experience imaginable. And yet the hardest probably 
because we were, you know, five shows a week, neophyte host, and an insane desire to make our mark with so much pressure, <laughs> original material. The stakes were really high in, in the spotlight were, on Well, you. Conan's whole career was right. at stake, basically. You know, I might have said on the last show when he took me into his office and said, I don't want to be the answer to a, a trivial pursuit question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> who who replaced Letterman for six months in 1994. And he was not laughing. He was dead serious. And, you know, it was one of those moments where he had to remind me that, you know, to compromise a little bit. Like, because, you know, right. you think of shit and some of it's working and some of it's not. And I'm like, you try it. We can refine it. And maybe the network is pushing back. Right. You know, I felt very proud that not only of all the stuff we created, but that by the time I left, which was like January of 95, that the show was very different than, than even what we started with. Like we had made a lot of adjustments, I think, to... Uh, from the Letterman show? No, I mean, it was different from our first oh, okay. couple of weeks in 93, yeah. where we would have people interrupting interviews, you know, that level of insanity. Right. Watching that, the interruptions and everything, as a viewer, I can imagine uh, doing the show, that would get probably exhausting. But as a viewer, that was, I, I just love. I think it stuff. was thrilling stuff. And I think yeah. Conan, Conan was all for it. You know? yeah. Sometimes I've seen Lorne say, it was Robert's show, and then he left and it became Conan's show. <laughs> and I never felt that way. I felt like we were very much in sync. Yeah. And, you know, he loved all these ideas and he wanted to do them. But we learned as we did them that, you know, again, he was a neophyte and he did not necessarily, like if we had done it with a guy who'd been in radio for 10 years and now was getting his shot and had established his sensibility right. and was comfortable with people coming in and out, you know, and in interrupting stuff like he'd been used to it and and he, you know, more of a who gives a fuck what the audience thinks kind of attitude. And Conan was not capable of shielding himself from the audience's silence at times. You know? <laughs> not at that stage. Yeah. Not yeah. at that stage. Oh, God. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Just having to learn how to host a show yeah. and everything involved and interview people and tell right. monologues and all the sketches. Just in insane challenge. Plus his inherent personality has always been a people pleasing kind of right. being who loves an audience laughing. He doesn't like to create stress. Yeah. That's how he gets feedback. Yeah, exactly. It's his oxygen. Right. So by the end of my run there, I felt like we'd done a lot of things that I ne didn't necessarily want to do originally. Like we would compartmentalize crazy ideas instead of just letting them happen. You know, like in 1993, we, we never would have called a bit guests will never have come back. A self-conscious name. Like yeah, that. we would never create something and define it as being crazy or bad. You know what I mean? Like, we would just let it happen. <laughs> we would be interviewed. Right. We'd have a fake guest who was terrible, and we would actually bring him out. It would be like our act three. would be a real guest who was problematic, and then it would, like, be a part of the show instead of instead of labeling it. Having a title card or... Yes, yeah, yeah. and by doing that, it allowed the audience to understand the context and, right. you know, which at the time in 1993, I was like, oh, no, we can't do that kind of... That's a Letterman-y kind of cop-out. But what it, what it ended up doing was giving us the leeway to go even crazier, you know? And then, then like, bits like satellite TV, it created a... a, a a baseline where you could just present an idea that was just going to be a, a joke bag. A bucket. Yeah, a joke bucket, joke bag, a joke tote. A joke <laughs> valise. <laughs> Valises aren't funny. <laughs> no V words. No V words. It's hacky. So, yeah, I, I feel like that sort of was where I left the show in 95. And then I feel like the show just got especially like Groff came in and the, you know, a couple of years later. And I, I just felt the show got way better because they got to, they got to produce even crazier concepts, you know? Right. And, and everything was gelling. And then the, the, you know, the press all of a sudden like caught on to it and loved it. So that, yeah. Oh yeah. Conan's confidence was obviously. Yeah. Through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I think that was happening anyway, just through from the audience responses, you know. Right. And that was even starting to happen when we were there. Like by February, we were getting audiences who were familiar with the show and applauding when characters would come on. And I have to say, watching stuff from 93 and early 94, the crowds were great right away. <laughs> <laughs> they were. No, they were. They, they were, were pretty good. They were, yeah, they yeah. were laughing. And yeah. who was warming them up? Who did the warm ups? I remember when you were doing a mic. Well, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if it was Sweeney. Mike was great. Joel did it. Then uh, Louis C.K. did it, and then um, and then I t- took over. Yeah. When did you take over? Like in uh, December '94. Of '94. Yeah. So that means there was like a whole year. No, I was there when you were there. I left in January of '95. Oh, okay. Then yes, you were there. Jesus. Well, I mean, I was still there a lot doing clutch cargos and stuff. Right. Clutch cargos. Do you want to explain what those are? Because you did hundreds of (laughs) clutch cargos. That was a bit where we would talk to, uh, Conan would talk to a celebrity by talking to a photograph. We would cut out the mouth. Right. And uh, usually I played the celebrity, but occasionally (laughs) it was people like Brian Stack or Brian McCann or... Right. I'd been wanting to do... It was one of my... One of my earliest thoughts was Conan could interview people in the news as uh, a running thing, and we would just have actors playing celebrities. And then Dino one day, uh, in the uh, early months before the show came on, just said, we should do something with Clutch Cargo, which was a big Chicago thing. Everybody, Dino's from Chicago. Did you know what he was talking about? I knew what he was talking about because I had spent three years in Chicago and it was like a comedy staple among improv people like uh, Clutch Cargo, you know, that kind of crap because it was the funniest, lamest. It wasn't something I grew up with, but people in the Midwest grew up with where it was literally a cartoon show, but they didn't animate it. They just did stills oh, great. of a superhero named Clutch Cargo and uh, the people he interacted with. And they were all still photographs, still drawings, <laughs> but they cut out the uh, mouth and that it passed as television back then. Right, right, right. So Dino had said we should do something with that. And I immediately connected it with celebrity interviews and thought, oh, this is going to be way better than making people dress up in costumes. And it's much dumber and... Yeah, self-aware. Right. Yeah, it, it, that's right. Self-aware, which gave it a, uh, a layer of irony, much like Triumph, where y- you instantly are cut some slack for, like, in Triumph's case, bad puppeteering. And in this case, bad impressions. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> you're a great impressionist. I'm pretty good. You are. I'm pretty good. And you do it all with the mouth, which is even... <laughs> it's That's harder. Uh, or easier. If like, all you have to focus on visually is the mouth, Donald Trump's uh, fish mouth and that kind of thing. Right, right. Or Arnold's uh, grimace. I do miss that terribly. That was the most fun I had. Clutch cargo. Doing those, yeah. yeah. more fun than Triumph because I just show up and... Right. You put your chin on that little rest. Yes, on a little blue chin rest. And you guys would write great jokes. Like, you know, in the early years, I would help write a lot of them. But yes, by the time the mid-2000s when you were running it and or even earlier, I would, you know, sometimes I'd call you with an idea and I'd have a bit for it. Right. You guys would write these amazing jokes and I just couldn't wait to do them. And, and it was just a great outlet for me. Yeah. And I really miss it. I mean, Jesus, I, I would have had so much fun doing Trump. Were those all done live? I mean, yeah. can you explain how you did it? Well, there was like a, just a little chin rest uh, off to the side of the stage. I did make sure that I, I told... The director, I want the person, whoever does it, to be seen by the audience, but to be off to the side. So they're in on the joke, but they're not distracted. So I was like all the way against, like, you know, one of the, the opposite wall that Conan... Over by the wall. Yeah, Conan was at his desk and spoke to the TV monitor, obviously, that had the photograph. And I was all the way on the other side of the studio doing it so that people could peek at me if they wanted to and feel like they were in on the joke. They were in on it. Yeah. 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 That's all. Which is great. Well, that's such a, it's so symbolic. I think of the tone that you set there of the voice of the show being both funny in its own right, but also self-aware. And like you said, ironic, like we're winking at the fact that we know we're kind of slapping together a comedy show. And it's always. Exactly. Exactly. The cheesiness of it was part of the, uh, was a big part of the charm. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember that first one we did uh, with Bill Clinton and uh, 
maybe the most exciting moment of my career in terms of like just because the first show had a lot of great bits that did great and it was super exciting. But the second show was the first time we did a clutch cargo and, and it was such a big swing. It's such a crazy bit. We wanted to do it on the first show, but Lauren wanted actual items, which was a great bit. He wanted Conan running the bit and not playing straight men. So, so that's why we did actual items on the first show. But, but the clutch with Bill Clinton killed so hard. And especially this one moment so we're, we were rehearsing in the afternoon and I remember saying to Conan, feed me the water, like from his mug, like I was Bill Clinton and I wanted him to, uh, you know, hold up his mug and I was going to take a drink, you know, his water. And then, so he holds the mug up and I do it. And then he says, no, lap it up like a kid. <laughs> so I did the, with my tongue and that's what we ended up doing on the, on that night. And the laugh was just, that was the first really huge laugh we, we got on the show on that second night, that moment. And it was, it was just such a thrill because it was, you know, because we were building this show from scratch. Right. To, to have that kind of reaction on the second show already mm-hmm. was uh, amazing. Really amazing. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that year was insane. I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was just, but that, but that's like probably my number one moment Aww, yeah. at the Conan show. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Well, uh, doing the Clinton clutch, there came a time where you actually did it in front of him. Oh. Wow. Yeah. That was a crazy night. Oh, my God. White House Correspondents Dinner. Oh that was God. in 90, 95. Yes. Conan got invited. He's been he's done it twice. He's done it the twice. First time he did it, he was very he was very raw, but he was amazing. Yeah, he killed. He did it in 95. And I think the Clinton clutch cargo had a little to do with why he may have gotten invited because they were well aware of it and they wanted us to do it. So we did. But before we did it, Conan had about a 10-minute monologue, I'd say, and it was fantastically written. Yeah. He delivered the jokes great. And he really could have just sat down and <laughs> and it would have been enough. And then we did the clutch cargo. And the clutch cargo killed for a while. <laughs> and Clinton was like, I don't know if he was doing this to show what a good sport he was, but um he was laughing so hard, it was almost like he sounded like my impression. Where were you in relationship when you did that? Clutch, were you out on the stage? I was very similarly. I set myself like... So the crowd could see you. I set myself so that the crowd could be aware of who where I was, but I was all the way... Off to the side. So now, I mean, there's a huge dais at, the, at these things, so... And there's three, it's like 3,000 people. It's a giant crowd. Yes, the nerd prom, the nerd prom, right, used right, to right. call it. <laughs> There'd be celebrities in the audience as well as um, the entire, you know, Washington media. It's a very big room. And so I was way off to the side. And I think people were aware of it, but not nearly, it wasn't, near, it wasn't nearly as easy to spot as it would be in an empty studio stage, you know, so. Right, right. But but I did it and we were killing and a lot of it were like jokes about how it was that thing we used to do on Conan almost, like the premise of Clutch Cargo that sort of set off Clinton's behavior was, I just always thought it would be funny that it's 1230, nobody's watching, Clinton can say whatever he wants. Right. Like that's why we presented him as sort of Clinton's id. <laughs> right. An exaggerated bill. A way exaggerated bill, yeah. yeah. Did you first meet Conan at SNL? Is that where, and yeah. do you remember when you guys met? Is, or is that blurry? I don't specifically remember the meeting, but I remember hearing about Conan right. like two years earlier because I was assigned to, I think it was my second year at SNL, maybe 1986. 
the summer of 86, I was assigned to write a Superman 50th anniversary special for uh-huh. CBS. And I wrote it with Bruce McCullough, brilliant kids in the hall writer, and Rosie Schuster, and another great writer from the original SNL. And we were looking for someone else to help. And Vitti, John Vitti, who was already on the staff, told me about Conan and said, this guy's just another level. I ran the lampoon for two years. And trust me, he's the funniest guy. You don't even need to read his stuff. Just hire him. And for some reason... And how did John know him? You know, poonies. They just, they never leave that. Oh, okay. He was on... I, I Yes, I he was a Harvard lampoon okay. guy and Conan... Do you call him poonies? You've never heard that expression? Poonies? I have not heard that. <laughs> no. No, it's a real expression. Maybe they don't use it anymore because it has <laughs> negative connotation. Because <laughs> Letterman was very Harvard heavy. Right. I think Conan and I both had like a slight, I don't want to say prejudice, but there was a part of us that both wanted the show to really feel like visual and performance oriented. And we may have had just a, a sense that like most of the guys submitting wrote for the page and had a a kind of a dryness that we weren't looking for. You know, Conan, his personality is nothing like a a Harvard stereotype. He loves to be big and silly and... uh, Yeah. The stereotype of being bookish and and kind of... Or wry. And writing satire. Yeah, Yeah. and dry. Yes, very tossing off quips and wearing ascots, which all Harvard writers do. (laughs) First Lampoon guy we hired was Brian Rich, actually. Ah, right. He's a great writer. He's a genius. He's he's one of the all-time most brilliant guys I've worked with. Hilarious. Yeah. You know what? That, That tradition, at least... On Conan shows, where anyone went to college never comes Yeah, up. now we don't oh, even no. hire college graduates. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I mean, if you take the time, there's brilliant people everywhere, obviously. And uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the show has always, I mean, after I left, it got even more Chicago, you know? I mean, once you started hiring. Uh, late night, the Conan show, yes. Yeah, late night, Stack and Glazer and McCann and Dorf. I mean, those were all guys hired after I was there. Right. We're never going to get to triumph. No, let's get to triumph. Uh, yeah, we got to get to triumph. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to triumph. Tell us about the birth of triumph. <laughs> oh, I, th- I think I told you last time how my wife and I were. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were newlyweds and shopping for furniture. And this cutesy store had a rack of uh, whimsical puppets that were <laughs> realistic animal heads. And I'd never seen puppets like that. They were like rubber animal puppets that looked super real, not cartoony. And it just cracked me up. And I put one of the dogs on and immediately sniffed her ass with it in the middle of the store. Right. And of course, being my soulmate, she (laughs) giggled, thought it was funny, didn't have any problem with it. And then for my birthday, which was like a couple of months later after we were married, she surprised me with like seven of these puppets. (laughs) and like there were like three dogs and a couple of cats and like a seal and uh, a sheep all of which I ended up using in one way or another an owl I remember the owl and then like a week later the Westminster dog show was in town and Letterman was doing his found humor which I'm sure in the last show I said was the opposite of what we were trying to do and he just had Westminster champions running through the aisles which was really funny. Just right. these show dogs just behave like crazed. Gone wild. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, oh, well, I got these puppets. Maybe we could, I, again, so I, I just wanted to do the opposite. So like, okay, let's use these puppets and have them be very talented and have Conan say the, the Westminster dogs get more talented every year. And uh, here's the dog who, and the first dog sang the theme from the bodyguard. And then we would have dogs doing dueling banjos. Right. <laughs> and magic tricks and ba- balancing uh, plates. Magic tricks. A dog would saw another dog. Yeah, right. plate spinning dog on the nose. And oh, so those were all your puppets that you brought in. Then we bought new puppets from. The, okay. you know, they found out where we where I bought them, and they got a whole bunch of them. Uh-huh. And we, you know, we had a dog that one year lit its own farts, and uh, we had the dog who did the Jack Nicholson impression and put his paw over his forehead like a hacky Jack Nicholson impersonator. Right. And I'm Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. And I made Louie and whoever else 
I feel like I would bring in Glazer. I don't know why, but not in the early years. But, but uh, well, I I think you you guys you did that the first few years, so it became a tradition. Yes, and we everybody had to have a Russian accent, right? Because that was my <laughs> you know crazy thing that I'd always heard in my head from my Russian relatives from when I was a kid. So yes, yeah, so that's that's basically where. And then like 1997, I just called John Groff and said, we never did insult comics. So let's uh, have this idea that I just had in the shower where a dog, an insult comic is so limited that all he can do is pay a compliment and then say for me to poop on. (laughs) And that's what, that was it. The joke was on the dog being so bad. But then I said a couple of funny things too. And then it just became this thing where you could satisfy everyone's cathartic need to have Conan insult on John Tesh or William Shatner, whoever the first guest was. Right. You'd come out after the, for a while, you'd come out in this little puppet theater. Yes. And we'd get the first guest to agree. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of people are like, oh yeah, how bad can it be being insulted by a dog puppet? (laughs) Exactly. Little did they know. Yeah, it was John Tesh. William Shatner, David Hasselhoff, Lucy Lawless. Don Rickles agreed. Well, that was amazing. That was, oh, by now, Triumph what was a dream. A huge, yeah, he was huge by the time Don I wrote some jokes it. for that one, and I was so I was so excited. Oh, yeah? Which one do you remember? <laughs> Eating Alpo out of the toilet. Oh, oh, oh that was good. And you oh, look okay. like a chew. I have chew toys that look better than you. Yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> and I had the thing uh, where I had, I had them make a tiny little toy toilet. <laughs> right. Because then I turned on and I said, I worship the ground you poop on, Rickles. <laughs> Please poop on me, Rickles, please. And then I, <laughs> and the puppet ducks down and a toilet emerges and Triumph's head bursts through the toilet. I'm begging you, <laughs> poop on me. And Rickles had no idea what was going on. Right, oh, right. Man. He was never put in that position where he had to play a straight man before. Right. So I remember all he said was, uh, wonderful animal. <laughs> I know he just stared. I, wow. I was, it was awkward. It was a little speechless. I know, I know. I was bummed he wasn't laughing. But we told, we told him what we were going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was exciting to meet him. I remember meeting him yeah. backstage and he says, hello, rabbi. <laughs> I'm sure he did that for like nine out of 10 Jews that he had back then. But I was so excited to meet him. Yep. Originally, Triumph wasn't even a body. Triumph was just a head with a boat. Right. Top. Because oh, he never right. thought of having him do anything beyond just sticking his head up from a puppet stage. None of the puppets did back then. And then we then we tore open a. Uh, then when I realized that I wanted to like occasionally bring on poodles and share hot dogs and try to hump them, right? I right. I said he needs a body. So Bill Tull, our prop master, bought a doll and just gutted it and cut the head off of a a dog doll of, <laughs> a, a, real, of a soft a real dog. Yeah, so it doesn't match at all. It's like a plush. No, doll it's furry a, and, and a yeah. rubber head, and it's yeah. Just, yeah doesn't match, but that's what Triumph is since then. It's always been that. Well, and there are multiple Triumphs too, right? Because Yeah, everybody asks me that. There are multiple yeah. Triumphs. They're, the first one like melted on my windowsill. <laughs> <laughs> been through so many. And yeah, we used to have to buy them from like, once Triumph became famous, the, the company went out of business. It was a Mexican company, I think, right? Yes, Mask Illusions and... Um, no, I should have looked this up. I, I I found out the name of the guy who actually sculpted the original Triumph. He still lives in San Diego. <laughs> and I communicated with his daughter and I, I do want to meet him someday. But uh, the company went out of business, so we couldn't buy them anymore. So then there were people who like bought them up and we'd have to buy them from them on eBay. Um, like Bill oh, it's Cole. like buying an early web, web domain name. It's like yeah, buying exactly, a, exactly. Buying up the Triumph puppets. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the reasons I wanted a sitcom with Jack McBrayer was just so that I'd have an excuse to get a mold made and make a lot of new Triumphs, whether well, the show worked or not. But they had a mold. They did that at late night. I remember once going into the. Um, they made a mold of Triumph at late night. Yes, the makeup lab oh, where I they would do this. all the late. They do all the latex masks for. Yeah, the it was snow. because we needed a second one. For a sketch, then we were out of them. Yeah, I remember we did. I remember going in there. There were six in various. They were in various states of painting. States stages. Some were were just the the white mold. Others were slowly being painted in. And it, I I almost screamed when I walked in. It was it was like aliens. (laughs) It was terrifying. 
to see six of them gathered together. After the first triumph, which was in 99, and we should talk about the first one because... The first remote. The first remote. Yes. You played a big role in Jordan Schlansky. Jordan had his first cameo on... Oh. No, but no, that wasn't in that one. But Jordan, the, the, the thing wouldn't have happened without Jordan. But I just want to say, like, that one was mostly improvised and it was amazing because we'd never done anything like that before. Mm -hmm. You guys even submitted it for an Emmy. And uh, we didn't win because everybody was like, oh, this must be improvised. Right. And then sadly, many years later or four years later, you submitted the Star Wars one. Right. Which had many great jokes that were pre-written by all of us. Right. And some that were on the spot, like Dorf and um, Secunda. Uh, Andy Secunda was there. Were, were with me. And both of them came up with unforgettable lines. Andy Secunda had the, the most famous line. The line that's quoted to me more than any other line is uh, when I said to, when Triumph said to uh, Darth Vader, he's, this is the panel that allows me to breathe. And then Triumph and I, Secunda, I didn't know what it was. And so I asked Secunda, because I wasn't as big on Star Wars as these two guys were especially Secunda. So, and then he immediately just gave me this joke. And I, the reason I'm giggling is because I've literally just heard the joke. <laughs> and it's like, and which button do you press to tell your parents to pick you up? Yes. Did we explain what the Star Wars... What was the... Yeah, we should explain what the Star Wars remote was. If they've ever seen anything that I've done, <laughs> that's what they've seen. Triumph went online. There was a line for Star Wars, uh, Attack of the Clones. Every time there'd be a Star Wars in the 2000s, there was this publicity-driven thing where people were invited to stand online for days before. Days. Outside the Ziegfeld Theater. The second time it happened, Triumph was already a big deal. And my friend Harvey, who I went to uh, like nursery school with, literally, and was still friends with, he, he became a, a high-powered lawyer and he worked like in an office right across the street from the Ziegfeld Theater. And he called me up about this line and told me I should go over there as Triumph. So I pitched it to you guys. And Mike told me that Conan was already pitched going to do the Star Wars, going to the Star Wars line himself. Right. But then you pitched Triumph doing it. And Conan realized immediately that it would be funnier and less mean Again, it's that layer of irony that Triumph has. He's got a cigar in his mouth and he's a little dog puppet and he's like representing an old time kind of comedy and he's got a gold bow tie. And all these things kind of allow him to be more like, uh, you know, the low status court gesture kind of figure that makes everything he does less mean. I mean, that's one of the secrets of, of why I think people, I, I never get in much trouble doing Triumph for that reason. No, people love him. They love to be roasted by him. Yeah, he's just because he's, <laughs> he's kind of cute and harmless. And uh, yeah, and so he immediately said, oh, yeah, have Triumph do it instead. Yeah, and that's still, I'll never top that. I'll never top that one. And that's fine. But let's, let me, I just wanted to talk about 99 and the, the we got to talk about that because. Yes, I want to come back to that too. The first Westminster dog show remote. Because it's an incredible story. So the first time, Triumph was already probably the most popular character on the show, I would say, by 1998, just from his appearances after each interview. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was Pimp Bod and the Masturbating Bear, and they were incredibly hilarious. But I think Triumph was the big, the big character on the show at this moment. And, and then Mike writes to me and says, why don't we go to Westminster and you can hit on dogs there? And, uh, and I just thought it was perfect. And I, I had no idea if we'd get in. So Jordan, who everybody wonders what he does at the show, and I'm not even sure what he does now, but Jordan Schlansky back then was the field producer, right. essentially. He was in charge of making remotes happen. We'd never done a remote with Triumph, but Jordan got permission to go to Westminster. And we, you know, we didn't do as much preparation. Like I said, we didn't write jokes for this one. It wasn't no, the same kind of, We didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it would be funny enough just to interact and make quips and... Uh, hump. And of course the <laughs> humping. We knew we had a great ending if we could just yeah. get to some of these dogs. <laughs> so the guy calls back and revokes our permission like a day before. And we're just... Groff and... And me, we're just like, oh, okay, I guess we're not going to do it. And 
we may never have tried to do a remote again. Jonathan Graff was the head writer at the time. Yeah, John Graff was the head writer. Uh, we may never have ever done another Triumph remote, but Jordan Schlansky was not going to give up. Instead of letting it go, Jordan came up with this whole, you know, this whole scheme of... Uh, it was one of his greatest moments. Yes, it was the great heist of, uh, of 99. It's the last time he did work on the show. I know, I was, <laughs> was? I think he retired. No, I'm kidding, that. I'm kidding. No. He, he did a lot of stuff with Triumph over the years, but right. he, he literally printed up fake NBC IDs for us. Press credentials. Some sort of credential. Yeah. just said NBC on it and yeah. it was laminated and we all wore it. And it wore, they worked. We couldn't, go with, we couldn't go with late night credentials because that no. would have been a problem. Tip it off. So right. we pretended we were media. And, um, you know, and some people at the show were worried. The, the like, puppet was from NBC Nightly News. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, the puppet was hidden in his Dwayne Reed bag. That's for right. sure. So, you know, and of course, some people at the show were worried. Uh, this is a little uh, dicey. And Jordan, in a very Jordan kind of way, <laughs> like justified it. Like, you know, he's like, well, given that we are indeed employees of the National Broadcasting Company, yes, yes. I do not consider it in any way, uh, you know, uh, uh, any manner of trickery. <laughs> right. Very Jordan-y kind of rationale. No, it made, it made the whole thing much more exciting. He also did like, you know, Intel. He, he scoped out the dog show. Right. And, you know, so he, got, he says, go in and just, if anyone asks, say we're NBC, he found a loading dock. Right. He didn't, he, don't go through the front entrance. Go through this loading dock <laughs> in the back and just act, proceed, like, you know, proceed with confidence. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and self-assurance and a self a sense of purpose. Right. <laughs> you know, these were the Jordany kind of instructions. Right, right. So we just go up this ramp and we've got these laminated credentials and we're doing our thing and we get in and we're it's we're, we go for a while. And we start out on the floor and that went well and then we, we start went... out on the floor Triumph did some presentational stuff and I think right. we actually did get to talk to one judge and then we started talking to real dogs backstage. Right, where they're being groomed. And that's and that's when things got... Yes. And th we didn't last very long talking to the dogs, but Jordan knew that we were going to get thrown out. And so he actually told our cameraman that no matter what happens, just keep shooting. Even as we're being thrown out, whatever it takes, it'll end up helping us to just get whatever we can. And I pissed off a dog groomer at some point, you know. I probably, knowing Triumph, it was probably a poodle, and he probably made... I love, I love it's knowing Triumph, no. not, not you. <laughs> no, knowing this puppet. No, I, 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 I'm, dude, I'm channeling. Right. I'm, I, I'm becoming something else when I'm, you know, I, I lose myself. I, I, yeah, I know you channel. Triumph via me said something that probably implied that this little poodle was gay. I'm guessing. <laughs> and I'm guessing that the groomer got offended by that. And we got ejected. And then Jordan made it a point to keep bullshitting the people who wanted to throw us out. Like he was trying to protract the moment. Yes. Yeah. He was trying to buy time. Yes. And he's like, but I spoke to so-and-so and I spoke to so-and-so. Right. And it didn't yes. matter that the person, the so-and-so that he spoke to had said, don't come. Right. <laughs> he's just like. I had such great admiration. He really, that's when I first learned what a great bullshitter he could be. He just. He was incredible. Kept going and going. And they, yeah. he tangled everyone up for a few minutes. Yeah. And he's like, you know, then later he's like, well, technically I felt completely justified in my statement. Right. I, I wasn't lying. I did right, indeed right. speak to these people. I just omitted right. the fact that they said right. no. Right. <laughs> so we ended up, because we finally got the person like covering the camera, whatever, you know, with their hand, pushing them away. Right. That was the ending we needed. And, uh, you know, if we had given up, honestly, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you needed that getting tossed. Well, we, no, but the whole thing was, the only reason the, the, the remote existed was because of everything Jordan did to make it happen in the first place. And right. wow. I honestly don't know if we would have done more remotes. Like that one was such an enormous hit. Yeah. That of course we decided to do more remotes after that, but I don't know that we ever would have. Well, we've run out of time. We've done it again. So you're going to have to come back in 15 months. Yes. 15 uh, months, God willing, we're all here. And that's healthy. right. 
podcasting is still a thing. Thank you. You're such an easy guest for us because you just... Yes. It's just a lot has happened. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. (laughs) (laughs) In 25 years. We always end now. We ask our guests to give some advice. Oh. To people starting out. Advice for people starting out. Just, yeah. Whether they want to be writers or performers or puppeteers. Find Uh, ways to do the work. And I know this is contrary to other people who say become an intern or get connections. I'm like all about do the work and find like-minded people to do the work with and just gain confidence. And then you'll get better in the process. You'll make friends that way. None of them will be connected necessarily, but maybe one of them will, will get the break and that'll be your break. But, uh, but more importantly than connections, I think it's just about finding like-minded people and working with them Mm-hmm. and building your confidence and gaining experience. To me, if you're doing stuff that's not that's getting in the way of your ability to practice, learn your craft, then you're not doing it right, in my opinion. Like even when back in Chicago, Odenkirk was there. He was a good friend of mine, and he was a waiter at Ed DeBevick's, the, right. the 50s throwback he was. Uh, chain. Yes, he was, and he... Uh, And he said, yeah, it's better to just get that work out of my head. Like, you know, put in my, you know, six hours of waitering and it's got nothing to do with comedy. And then I can just focus on the work, you know, because sometimes I think people get uh, dilute the goal by, by focusing too much on the end game. Like, how am I going to get connected? How am I going to get this job? Yeah. Instead of just focusing on how am I going to get better? Yeah, because you're right. Well, even if you got an opportunity, you don't want to get the opportunity before you're ready for it. That's true. That's true. You want to be as good as you can be when that opportunity comes. Yeah, I actually think I would have been done better at SNL. Three years later. <laughs> no, I really would have, actually. I would have had a more sense of, of and confidence in my style of writing. And instead, I kind of went there trying to figure out what they wanted for a couple of years, really. And it still worked out. It worked out. out. It worked out. It worked out. All right, great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. All right, guys. And stay safe. Always nice talking to you guys. And that was Robert Smigel. Ta-da. It's great to have him back. And maybe we'll have him back again. Who knows? Of course. (laughs) There's still plenty to talk about. Uh, We've been loving your fan letters and voicemails. It's truly, we, I I love our fans so much, or at least the people who call into our our line. So please leave more voicemails and call us at 323-209-5303. Or you can always email us if you're feeling voice shy. Our email is insideconanpod at gmail.com. And that's our show. See you next week. We like you. Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast, is hosted by Mike Sweeney and me, Jesse Gaskell. Produced by Jen Samples. Engineered and mixed by Will Becton. Supervising producers are Kevin Bartelt and Aaron Blayart. Executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Earwolf. Thanks to Jimmy Vivino for our theme music and interstitials. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, please subscribe and tell a friend to listen to Inside Conan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever platform you like best. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.